Hi, this is Bob Trump for the Ship to Shore segment of the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Uh, today, my guest is a former colleague uh, and journalist, Gilbert Gall, uh, winner of two Pulitzer Prizes, uh, author of uh, several books, um, and his upcoming book is right in our pocket on this podcast and for the network. Uh, it's called The Geography of Risk, Epic Storms, Rising Seas, and the Cost of America's Coast. Uh, it'll be out this fall, I believe. And um, with that said, Gil, how are you doing? Well, uh, I'm doing really well. A little tired from working on the book, as you know, from having done books yourself. Uh, but I feel good about it. And I'm looking forward to it uh, being published on September 3rd. Great. Great. One of the uh, things I noticed uh, in our social media exchanges uh, was you posting a picture of uh, uh, you and some colleagues, probably at the age of 20, uh, lifeguarding uh, on the shore. Uh, Is that where your interest in shorelines first began? No, actually, it began. I've I've gone to the beach pretty much my entire life. I grew up in North Jersey by New York City. And even though we had a a fairly modest uh, family background, somehow we always managed to go to to go to the shore for a week or two. And in um, 1962, um, in uh, June, I guess it was, uh, we went to Long Beach Island and we went to uh, a place called Love Ladies, which at the time, it's an unincorporated section of of Long Beach Island, which is today the largest and richest barrier island in in New Jersey, certainly one of the richest in the, uh, probably in the country. Um, Any case, uh, this was Three months or so after the uh, Ash Wednesday storm of March 1962, which some of your listeners may be familiar with, but I'm guessing most aren't. And the 62 storm um, is absolutely fascinating. It's the bookend to Hurricane Sandy and almost exactly 50 years apart. The 62 storm just obliterated obliterated the mid-Atlantic coast. Um, and when we went to Long Beach Island, and, and finally, or, or interestingly, the way we got there was my father, who was a high school teacher somehow, the friend of a friend of a friend, owned uh, one of these small uh, capes. It was probably 600 square feet um, cedar shingle uh, up in the dunes in Love Ladies, one of only a handful at the time in Love Ladies, which was largely undeveloped then. Anyway, we spent the summer there. So um, I got to see the recovery from the storm. There were still houses in the ocean. There were still roof lines in Barnegat Bay from the um, from the uh, 62 storm, which which wasn't a hurricane, by the way. It was, it was just a, um, an extraordinary nor'easter which over five high tides uh, flooded the mid-Atlantic coast. So that's really where my interest began. Um, I saw this stuff, and then um, uh, I continued uh, to go to the beach um, as I was growing up. And when I was in um, high school and college, I was an ocean lifeguard in Beach Haven, which is also on Long Beach Island. So all that stuff really got me thinking about it. And then <clears throat> I've been going to Long Beach Island for now 57 years. I still go there um, to go surfing on a longboard. And uh, so I've seen all the changes there. And, and all of this got me thinking about this. And then when Sandy hit, 
um, I began to think about it in a more serious way in terms of doing a book about it. So f- fast forward all those times, what do you find these days at, at your boyhood shore and, and shores in general? What's the, uh, what does the book uh, embrace when it talks about the geography of risk and the cost of America's coast? Yeah, so I'm covering an awful lot of ground um, here, and that's on purpose. I mean, what I wanted to do, and this may sound a bit arrogant, I don't mean it to sound that way, but it it comes off that way. I wanted to write what I consider to be a history of the modern coast. So what I mean by that is, if you look at the coast, um, you really um, see the development in a couple of stages, but the modern coast really begins roughly around 1925. That's the argument I make. It explodes in the post-war area era um, in the 50s when you see the development of the shorelines and the development of this whole new industry of second homes at the beach, where it, before that, it, you know, a few people, relatively small number of people would own well, what we now think of as second homes at the beach. And they tended to be really wealthy people um, who would, uh, would, would go to escape the summer heat um, in their Victorian mansions or at staying at one of the Victorian places, um, either on the island or Ocean City or up and down the coast. Um, that changes dramatically with the development of the second homes. So um, over time, what you see really from the 50s until uh, the 90s is the filling in of the shorelines along the Atlantic and the Gulf Coast. I mean, you can literally track it, and I did, with data um, showing um, showing how we filled in barrier islands, filled in. Um, then after we filled up the barrier islands, we begin to fill up the waters along the bays and sounds of the coast. So that today, you go from, if you just take Long Beach Island, um, when I was um, this uh, going there and around 1962 there were roughly about 5000 houses on Long Beach Island which is 18 miles long from tip to tip and the value of those houses was about 100 million today there are 19000 properties on this 18 mile long barrier island um, and their uh, the assessed value is about fifteen billion dollars. The market value is probably closer to seventeen billion dollars, um, and it's the same story wherever you go up and down the coast. I mean, it's it's not only the crowding of the coasts, the development of second homes. It's uh, all of this property and coastal floodplains. So it raises all kinds of interesting policy questions about, well, how did this happen? Why did it happen? Did we ever try to approach this in, in, in what I would call um, sort of a loaded term, I guess, a rational uh, way of planning at the shorelines? Or did it well, that's that's one of the things I was going to say. If you if you assume, as economists do, that we have rational humans, uh, after the '62 storm, where everything gets obliterated, uh, people know it's a flood area. The rational thing would be, well, we aren't going to do that again. But that's not what happens, is it? No, it, no, of course not. It never, 
it never does, and it's interesting. So, so I tell the story of the development of of, uh, of Long Beach Island through uh, a guy by the name of Mar Shapiro, who stumbled upon the island in 1926. He bought 53 acres from uh, Barnegat Bay to to uh, the uh, oceanfront, the Atlantic Ocean, which is roughly it's not quite uh, one square mile, but it's almost one square mile. He paid fifty three thousand dollars, a thousand dollar an acre. Today, I went back and I took all of the all that property and I ran it through the property records, and very conservatively, I estimate that if you were going to buy that property today, it would it would cost at least four hundred million. It might even cost as much as six hundred million dollars. So that just tells you, tells you a little bit about sort of the wild inflation of beach property. Uh, look, I get it. Everybody loves to go to the beach, including me. Um, that's not the point. The point is, so how do you how do you think about these places, and how do you how do you apportion the risks of if you're going to do this? Um, who should um, who should pay when there is a, a disaster like '62 or or, uh, or Sandy? I mean, there are all these interesting public policy questions that we don't often talk about publicly very much. Um, and in fact, if you go back and you looked at Sandy or pretty much any other epic hurricane, what you see is there's great empathy towards the victims of the storm. Okay, I understand that. We, we, you know, we all feel that way. Nobody wants to see somebody lose, lose a home. But there are then these other important questions of, okay, what do we do next? Well, in New Jersey, after Sandy in 2012, and this is true also in 62, it was just a mad rush back to the beach. And you saw speculators within weeks um, bidding up the prices of property. Uh, the Shapiros who uh, were still there and still building on Long Beach Island, Herb Shapiro, who's now 96, the son of Morris, um, but is still very sharp, told me that you know they thought they were done after 62. They didn't think they'd sell another house. Well, you know what? Within a matter of, I think it was two months, they were back building their little capes on Long Beach Island. And today those capes are, are what? They're five and six story, or not story, sorry, bedroom, um, yeah, suburban style houses uh, on, on the island. So that's what's changed. I mean, everything has been supersized at the coast. Well, what what cuts the risk so that people do this? Is this uh, government involvement, insurance? Um, uh, I, I mean, again, normally, if you if you think your home might be destroyed uh, in the next uh, three years or uh, fifty years uh, by a hurricane, there would be uh, one one would think pretty high premiums. But I don't know that that's the case. What what? How do you? Uh, uh, What's how do we account for risk, or how is risk figured in these? So, in back in in the mid fifties, this will give you an example. Back in the mid fifties, after hurricanes, the federal government's share of the cost of recovery after those storms, in other words, what federal taxpayers um, uh, paid in order to help people to recover after those storms, the federal government share was five percent. Today, on average, it's 70%. And in many cases, even that 70% ramps up to 100% after coastal legislators 
God bless them, uh, get involved. And they managed to insert language into into appropriations bills and in recovery acts and disaster funding recovery acts and things like that. Um, they managed to uh, they managed to get in language that you know for that particular storm we're going to cover one hundred percent of some portion of the recovery. So you have that, um, and then you have. Uh, uh, a lot of subsidies on the front end that encourage development that people don't normally think about. Everything from back from uh, the introduction of uh, FHA mortgages or low inter- lower interest mortgages to um, tax dollars being used to build bridges uh, out to barrier islands and then to help pay for roads, utilities, water, electric, etc. And then you have this thing called flood insurance, <laughs> which is a story unto itself in my book. And it's just an amazing story because you could not des- have designed a more broken program from the get-go. The only way the federal government got involved in flood insurance was because the private insurers at that time all walked away from floods. They realized the risks were um, too high. Um, that um, they couldn't make money on it, that they were going to lose large amounts of money. So they literally walked away from that market. Over a period of decades, there's lobbying to get the government involved and create something called flood insurance. And you can, you, I walk readers through this in my book. You know, there are various attempts. Eisenhower wanted it. It didn't quite get through. Um, And then a succession of presidents, Johnson um, wanted it. Kennedy wanted it before Johnson. And then ultimately it comes, um, uh, flood insurance actually gets passed in in, uh, 68 under Nixon. And um, it was designed to do one thing, and it ended up doing exactly the opposite. Flood insurance was supposed to control or at least guide in a serious way development on the shorelines um, because of the obvious risk. And what they meant by that was, um, you know, it was intended. It was in, in, intended to keep development out of floodplains, not to encourage development in floodplains. Um, but what happened was um, when the law was passed and the, and the rules implementing the law were passed, um, the control over zoning and planning and building in these places remained with the local communities, not with the flood insurance program. And so, in fact, it became an incentive to help um, or to encourage people to develop in these risky places as opposed to regulating development in these risky places. And then there were a, a bunch of other important things. The flood insurance program never, um, it always had subsidized premiums and it subsidized, it, the heaviest subsidies actually went to the most dangerous properties, um, which flood, flood over and over and over again and still do. Um, and yet they couldn't kick them out of the program. They couldn't jack up the premiums to uh, what insurers call an actuarial rate, which is simply verbiage. That means we're going to actually charge you what we think the risk uh, is. And so there were a lot of subsidized houses. People could pass these subsidies along when they sold their houses. Um, the rates were always low. When um, the program administrators pointed out, hey, look, we're losing boatloads of money. We need to make this a more, uh, you know, 
make the rates actually reflect the risk. What happened was coastal legislators would step in and say, we can't do this. The rates are going to be too high. People are going to be forced out of their houses. They're going to lose their houses. And so, you know, we got to keep the rates lower. Um, It was more of a social program than it was an insurance program. What percentage of America lives near the coast these days? That's it's some incredible number, uh, and I would imagine that also reflects itself in congressional and, and senatorial votes. Well, it does, but I, I, you know, I'm I'm sort of chuckling to myself because the numbers we use to to describe population at the coast are mostly wrong. And the reason I say that is NOAA uses this incredibly generous um, description, geographical description of what the coast is. And in my opinion, it's just way overly broad. It goes way too far inland. And instead of focusing on on the immediate coast. When you break down the immediate coast, then it's variable. You have places like Florida, which, yeah, um, the population's just exploded over the last 50 years. Uh, And most of those people, by definition, live near the coast because Florida is a fairly narrow peninsula. Um, But there are other places where that's not true. And one of the really interesting things is, if you look at barrier islands on the east coast, especially in the mid-Atlantic region, including my beloved Long Beach Island, what you see is that the year-round populations are actually declining. They're not growing. There was always this notion that, well, when the baby boomers retire, they're all going to go live year-round in, uh, in their beach houses. Well, they don't. <laughs> and for the obvious reason, it's cold. <laughs> they don't want to be yeah. there in the winter. <laughs> so, they go to, so they go to Florida. And then the And then the spring returns and you see all these cars on the islands with Florida plates. Well, there you go. Um, So so really, it's 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 not exactly what people say when they say, well, look at, you know, there's there's now um, I'm going to make up a number here. Sixty percent of the American population lives by the shoreline. I mean, that's just wildly overstating the case. And you have to look at it really um, state by state and geography by geography to get a better sense of it. But my message is that it's not nearly as large a number and that it's much more of an investment community's community these days than it is around population. That changes, in my view, that changes some of the the way I think about some of these public policy questions. Gotcha. So let me just back up for uh, um, a second here. Uh, If if you have uh, the the government basically uh, assuming the cost of 70%, uh, in some cases even 100%, um, what does that do to shore access? Is there an equivalent... uh, uh, we, we, the people paid for it. We, the people, uh, get to use the shore or not. I believe the trends are going towards less public access, but what, what have you found in that area? Yeah, again, it's, it, it varies from state to state. I mean, some states have fairly strong, um, protections for people, um, accessing the beach. I wouldn't say there's an equivalency that um, because the government is spending all this money on recovery that there's less access. But I will say that in certain towns, for sure, there's less access. If you go to Loveladies, where 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 I stayed in the summer of 62, I mean, it's really hard to get on the beach and you don't see day trippers there. And that's not by accident. Um, there's no parking. 
Um, there's uh, very little in the way of public restrooms. There's no places to change or to shower. So, you know, why would you go there to try to get onto the beach? That's not by accident. You know, the folks who own all those $2 million, $5 million, $6 million, $10 million beach houses don't, don't want day trippers on the beach. They they believe, <laughs> no, seriously, they believe. Right. No, I know. I know. They believe they own that beach. And, and legally, I mean, in some cases, they do own the beach down to the high tide mark. So, um, you know, it's it's a mixed bag. Some towns are better at it. Some towns actually encourage um, day trippers, but uh, lots of places don't. And, and you know, that's, that's a problem for me because it raises, um, it raises this really important question of, of whether our coasts are public assets or private assets. One of, uh, one of my first uh, jobs out of uh, college was uh, uh, I, I ran the Beach Bureau for the Wilmington, Delaware News Journal uh, down in uh, Sussex County around Lewis and Rehoboth Beach. Um, and at that time, uh, there was an awful lot of attention paid to um, erosion and then restoration of beaches. Is this still a public policy um, uh, question too? Uh, aside from storms and that, just the regular uh, the regular forces of nature, tides and currents. Does that yeah. uh, still figure into the question? Oh, it's huge. Yes, I mean, in in, in an age of climate change and warming ocean, rising water, um, that's a that's a huge issue, and it's only going to become a more important issue. So if, if sea levels rise, you know, at a minimum, say, 3.5 feet um, by 2100, or arguably, and this is not an exaggeration, six feet or even more, then what happens? I mean, we're flooding all the barrier islands. And even if you have elevated homes, um, those uh, those barrier islands are, are going to be inaccessible for large portions of, of, uh, of the day, if not inaccessible, period. We'll see. Um, but erosion is still a huge issue. The interesting history of, 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 of the policy is, is you can go back to as early as 1900 in, um, in New York and New Jersey, and you go back and read the old papers. And what you see is all these stories about, oh my God, our beaches are eroding and Asbury Park is losing its beach and nobody's going to go there. And Long Branch is losing its beach and nobody's going to go there. Atlantic City is losing its beach and nobody's going to go there. And and it there, there literally was a, a group of people, mostly businessmen, God bless them. And they said, you know, we have to do something about this. And so they organized and became very good at creating this as a federal public policy issue and eventually eventually convinced the Corps of Engineers to get involved um, in uh, what I call defending the beaches or, or um, refurbishing the beaches or replenishing the beaches, whatever you want to do. Um, obviously, you can argue this one way or the other. Uh, it, it's... Um, you can say it's a good thing. Uh, look at what we're protecting. On the other hand, you can say this is just one more example of a subsidy that's that's pres- preserving a fairly illogical um, uh, thing. You know, building in a uh, in a coastal floodplain, one of the most dangerous places on the planet. Um, but this, uh, yeah, it's it's continues to be a problem. The big issue going forward, I think, is eventually somebody's going to wake up and say, um, you know, uh, given the, our debt, uh, given the uh, uh, the moral capital we're expending on beaches um, to to rebuild beaches as opposed to um, using for education roads for infrastructure or whatever, um, that. Uh, 
you know, that could come under pressure and that money, that federal share of money may eventually go away and the Corps may get out of the business of, of rebuilding beaches. Well, overall, in terms of, of public policy, how do, how do you think uh, this, this gets addressed? Is it a question, as is often the case, that, uh, you know, some sort of uh, reform or reassessment happens only when the current system topples or can no longer be sustained? Or is there is there a possibility of, uh, r- with uh, rising sea levels and the like, bringing it under a... Uh, a, a more rational control. Well, that's yeah. I mean, that's that's the important question going forward. I mean, I think you're right that over time um, we're already beginning to recognize um, that sea level is a real issue. That um, hurricanes are are um, going increasingly to be an issue, and I can explain that if you want. Uh, that damage and costs of what we're doing at the coast um, are going to continue to mount. They're not going. They're not going to go go down. I really don't think that um, there are ways, successful ways over the long long term, that you can make the coasts sustainable the way some people do. Um, I think that's problematic. Um, the problem, however, for the near term, is that. Nobody's addressing this in a um, comprehensive way. And I guess that's not surprising uh, because the way it works in our country is that um, we tend to defer to the states on most of these issues. And then the states tend to defer to the local coastal communities. And you don't have a whole lot of um, what's the word, Compre- a comprehensive view of how we want to think about the coast. There was there, there really was little, if any, planning before um, uh, all of this development took place. I, I use the figure $3 trillion in my book of development. Uh, I'm really conservative with how I use the numbers. Some people use uh, figures as high as $10 Ten trillion dollars of property along the coast. Um, I just use the immediate the numbers from the immediate coast that I cobbled together. So I played a little conservative, but you know you have all this property out there and nobody's really thinking about it in a big way. Um, occasionally, the National Academy of Sciences science, Sciences comes out with an important report. Those things go on shelves and people like me read them, but they basically gather dust and nothing gets done. Um, so I don't, I don't know how you change that attitude. Maybe um, if uh, going forward the seas do rise or uh, the, the sea levels accelerate and we see uh, even more and more damage going forward, um, if we have more hurricanes hitting heavily developed places like we have in the last two decades, um, maybe some, some point – uh, we'll step back and begin to say, you know, we need to think uh, a little more intelligently about what we've done at the coast and how we can now deal with it going forward. Gotcha. Just, I mean, hooking it, hooking it back to uh, your beginnings at the shore. What do you think uh, on LBI, on Long Beach Island, what do you think the likely outcome is there? And, and what do you think should be the outcome uh, that, uh, that would, would, 
would should come from uh, intelligent public policy. Is it is it one that lets you uh, still surf <laughs> off LBI, or or uh, is it one that we we need to retreat and rethink? Yeah, well, I'm 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 68 years old, so I don't think I have to worry too much about that. I, I think I, <laughs> I might be able to laugh for a few more years, but uh, well, Bob, let's say Bob. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I you know. I, I, you know, I, I think things are going to stay the same. I, I honestly, I suppose it could be viewed as cynical, but I don't mean it to be. I just honestly think that the economic incentives for the time being are, are that people are look at it and say, you know what, I've got a few more years. I'm just I'm just going to ride this out. And um, um, and and really little's going to change. I mean, what what the real risk here? That's the wrong way to say it. The, the real potential for change at the coast going forward, interestingly, has it probably isn't that people in Washington are going to get together and start thinking smartly about the coast. I think it's economics. Um, I think as the seas rise, you see more flooding. You see enormous amounts of nuisance flooding. You see these rain, what I call rain bombs, um, what Hurricane Harvey did, what Hurricane Florence did, um, what other storms have done and are increasingly doing. Um, You see uh, the impact that I see coming, I think, is that you're finally going to see the, uh, the wild inflation and land values at the coast begin to either slow down or even erode. And in a few places, you're seeing some some evidence of this already where where values at the shore are beginning to either freeze, slow, or actually go down for property. Um, So you have that. The other risks, I think, or the other other possible changes are that I think... um, the credit rating agencies uh, are increasingly looking at climate change and sea level rise and things like that. And they're becoming um, more circumspect about uh, lending money and how they're going to rate your town in terms of loaning money. So the cost of borrowing money may go up. And I think, and I think banks may get involved at a certain point in time and um, as the risks increase. And, you know, you may begin to see them become more reluctant to loan money. So I, I think really those are more, more, again, I'll use this awkward word, risks going forward than it would be, say, somebody in Washington saying, look, we need to, we need to rethink what we're doing out there and, and, and begin even to think about strategic retreat. Um Although I, I do think you'll begin to see a little of that. And again, it'll probably happen because of economics. One, uh, one last question uh, from, from me. Um, what, uh, wh- where will you be this summer? Are you, will you be down the shore? You bet. Uh, sure. I'm, as, I'm as much a hypocrite as anybody when it comes to all this. <laughs> and I, and I, I will tell people that up front when I, when I speak about this. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I love, the, I love going to the beach. I will, uh, although I don't, I don't stay on Long Beach Island and haven't for for about 35 years, I've been going to the Northern Outer Banks. Um, and I started, I started down there for a simple reason. It was too crowded at the beach in New Jersey. So I, I went down there and now it's crowded down there. So I don't know where I'm going next. But yeah, so I will, I will, I will be, I will be uh, surfing. I will be on the beach uh, as much as I can. And, um, and I will, uh, we also go, we'll be on the Outer Banks. And, um, 
Um, I hope to surf. And then I, I also hope to uh, go out and talk a lot about the book once it's uh, published. Well, it's, uh, it's been great talking to you again. Uh, it's uh, uh, Gil Gall, author of the upcoming book, The Geography of Risk. Uh, watch for it in September. And uh, Gil, can't thank you enough for your insights and your time. Thanks, Bob. It's been fun. I appreciate it.